0: Please rise for the reading of the word. This morning we're reading from Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen.
1: um, How special it is last year and this year to have a Christmas service on Christmas Day last year and Christmas Eve this year. It's just so fun to get to gather together. We're talking this morning about the peacemaking king of Christmas. Not the peaceful king, not the peace of the king, but the peacemaking of the king of Christmas. And so I want you to transport yourself back to a moment where the peace was needed to be made between you and somebody else. I... Was talking to Laura about this this week, and I was immediately—we both knew exactly what I was thinking about. Several years ago, I was playing golf with my brother at Hefner in Oklahoma City, and we get up to a uh, hole, and there's a shot that is just barely reachable to the green. And so, I'm not a great golfer by any means, as you'll see. But I had this at the time this seven wood, which I was just killing off the fairway, and I think the regular guidance is you should never really hit a 7-wood. But my granddad had given me this 7-wood, and it was like my Excalibur. Whenever I got into a situation, I pulled that thing out. And I line up to the ball, and I hit this shot. And if you're a golfer, you know when it just feels clean. It just feels perfect. You can just glide right through the ball. In fact, it was such a great shot. It was up, great height, great distance, such great distance that it flew over the green and into the parking lot right behind the green. And crashed into the windshield of a Ford Focus. So, <laughs> we the, when we got back to the turn, went into the pro shop, and I just went up to the desk and I said, hey, uh, just happened to fly one of the greens and hit a Ford Focus. If anybody comes in looking for something, here's my number. And you could almost see the blood drain from his face, as he said, it was a Ford Focus. I was like, "This is a Ford Focus. And he was like, was it silver? <laughs> I was like, I don't recall, but I think maybe it was silver. My brother, yes, it was silver. <laughs> so he looks to the guy next to me and says, do you want to go tell Ray or do you want me to tell him? I'm like, who's Ray? You know what? We got another nine holes to play. I got to get out of here. Well, Ray is the fry cook at the restaurant in in the clubhouse. And Ray was not pleased that this had happened to his car. In fact, he comes out of the kitchen in such a bluster, just yelling and kind of saying things, and all I could make out at the time as he stormed out to the parking lot was, they better make this right. They better make this right. Sure enough, we did make it right. That moment, we called, we got somebody to come out, replace it on the spot, we made it right, all whatever amount of dollars it was. But after the situation, though, we really didn't make it right. We just made it better. Because, you know, that, that's the thing about living in a fallen world is you actually can't make it right. You can't make it to where you recoup the time and the energy. You can't make it to where it's like it never happened. You can make the best of a bad situation, but this side of glory, you, you actually cannot make things right. If by right, you mean just the way they always should have been. And the story of of Christmas boiled down to one storyline is that God, when he sent his son Jesus on Christmas, was embarking on a project of not just making things better, but of truly making things right. And the tension of Christmas, and if if you have read anything, an Advent devotional or anything this year, usually you encounter the fact that Advent is... A fast season. It, it's a season of darkness. It's a season of longing. We treat it like one joyful ramp up to Christmas, but for ages, the church has always treated it like a fast before the feast. And what that reminds us of is our life now is a, is a life of better, making things better. But we're longing for the day when God will make things right. And that process started On a cold morning when the Son of God was born in Bethlehem, the grand project that God had been working on since the garden of making things right again had its triumphant note sounded in an insignificant cave where animals were kept in Bethlehem. So this morning, I want to trace this theme through the Bible and through Christmas, and I want to trace it right up into our hearts of what is God doing to make peace, to make things right in our world. And the simple idea of this morning and the simple idea of Christmas is God's strategy for making peace is not like any other strategy for making peace in the world. It is to make us right and enlist us in the project of making the world right again until his son returns to make all things right. So how is, how is God making things right in the world? Well, the first thing God's doing is he is making peace through his presence. He's making peace through his presence. If we go back into the period of time in Isaiah chapter 9, what's happening is the kingdom of Israel, which was essentially founded by God's decree that the Jews would come into the promised land. And when they came in, they had these judges, and they were moving people out of the land. And finally, about the time they get to King David... They have peace in the land. And David's son Solomon is the greatest king of Israel, not in terms of personal character, but in terms of riches and power and might and esteem. He is known all over the world for his wisdom and his reign. And It says people come from all over bringing gifts to this king who has brought peace to his world. Well, after that, his son... and. The heirs after that are not great kings. And this kingdom ends up splitting into two. And so you have the northern kingdom of Israel. This is kind of confusing because we use Israel for the whole thing. But the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And by this time, which is the 8th century B.C., 270 years after the reign of David, you have the northern kingdom of Israel, which has forsaken God, forsaken uh, their, their ability to defend themselves, and allied themselves with another nation, Against Assyria, who's going to conquer them. And they are really trying to get Judah to join this alliance against Assyria. Judah is more powerful, it is wealthier, it's also further away from Assyria. So if you're going to conquer uh, Israel, you're going to go to the northern king first, and then you're going to go to the southern kingdom. And so Israel is really trying to get Judah, the southern king of Judah, to join in on this alliance. And in the midst of this turmoil, a prophet walks in named Isaiah. And this is how it always happens in the Old Testament is you have the wisdom of man and the turmoil of the world and in God sends his prophet to speak his word into the situation. In fact, the the greatest picture of this is when one of the good kings in Judah, Hezekiah, is besieged by the greatest conqueror in the world, Sennacherib. And Sennacherib sends his messenger to Hezekiah to shout, basically trash talk, against the people of Judah. And he says, the great king says, the great king says, the great king says, and all of a sudden he retreats back into the place where he can meet with God in the temple. And Isaiah comes in, he says, the great king says all these things, but God says this. See, what God's prophets have always done in the Old Testament, and, and up through the time that we live, is they've taken whatever's going on in the world and they speak God's word into the world. Amen. And in this situation, Isaiah comes in and he says, there's no need to enter into a treaty because God himself is going to take care of the problem. See, this is the greatest comfort for Israel and for Judah is, is not just that things are going to work out right in the end. See, that's, that's impersonal. That's abstract. That's very difficult to trust. But the way God makes promises is, is not things are going to work out the promise that God makes is I am going to work things out I am going to personally see to it that you are protected sure enough in this campaign we see later about a generation later the northern kingdom and their allies are conquered and the southern kingdom of Judah trusts in the Lord and they are preserved and in this passage God tells us and tells them what he's going to do he says There's going to be a light that shines on these southern tribes. And the people who walked in darkness, the darkness of war and uncertainty, and in the face of a conquering empire, they will see a great light. And this nation, which is strong, will be strengthened by the Lord. And a child will be born who's going to save them. See, this is an interesting feature of the Bible, and this sometimes trips people up. In the local context of this passage, there is a king who's going to be born, who's going to deliver the people of Judah. His name is Hezekiah. But what Isaiah is saying is, hey, there's going to be an immediate fulfillment of this, but don't miss, there's going to be a greater fulfillment. There's not going to be a human king. There's not going to be somebody who brings about temporary peace there's not going to be somebody who is wise in a worldly sense there will be one who is born and his name shall be called wonderful counselor that that doesn't just mean like he's a counselor that everybody really likes that means he is a counselor of wonders he speaks about the wonders that god will do he will be called mighty god no earthly king could ever be called that everlasting father prince of peace god says i will intervene and i will send one of whom the increase of his government and of peace will never end on the throne of david and over his kingdom he will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore see these four titles are really prominent around Christmas time. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But what I want you to notice is that these titles are not like four wonderful titles that are all equal. These are titles that in this kind of poetry are leading up to a pinnacle title. In fact, the way that we should read this list is the first three titles are what you would need to be the last title. So in order to be the Prince of peace, which is the climactic title in this passage, the prince of peace, you would need to be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. But for anybody listening to this, what would have rung in the ears after they had heard this is prince of peace. God himself is going to come and make things right. So God makes peace, not through some shadowy control of historical events or kind of a fatalism, like all things will work out well in the end. God makes peace by personally intervening. His own presence is what brings us peace. In the Old Testament, the word for peace is the word shalom. And shalom is is one of those words that's hard for us to translate because it means such a holistic fruitfulness and flourishing in your life. We tend to think of peace as the absence of something. Peace is the absence of worry or of busyness or of strife. Peace is the absence of something going wrong in your life. But shalom is the flip side of that. Shalom is the presence of something healing and delightful and wonderful in your life. It is something that once it's in your life, it so overshadows and undergirds everything else going on that you can actually have peace, this kind of peace, in strife and in difficulty. See, our, our version of peace is not very durable because you can only have it if things beyond your control go your way. If you're not sick, if you're not worried, if you don't have a major setback, if the windshield of your Ford Focus doesn't get smashed in by some kid on the golf course, like, we can't control that kind of peace. But the peace that God gives is so durable and so enduring that you can have it even when things are going wrong in your life. So the peace, the shalom that God brings, the prince of peace can only come about when you have something that is so precious and so wonderful and so durable that it undergirds everything else in your life. Of course, the story of the Bible is that God is that wonderful peace. Paul puts it this way. Jesus, he himself, is our peace. Peace is a person. Peace is the presence of God with human beings. This is why Christmas is so unique from other religions. In other religions, and honestly, most of us sometimes slip into this, we're trying to escape the human experience. We, we want to get away from things like the finitude of our life and the decaying of our bodies and the rough experiences of being a human being in a broken world. In fact, all of our secular religions right now are telling us about some version of utopia that is an escape from injustice, or age, or anything that might befall us as human beings. But the Christian religion is not that we are escaping from humanity, but that God entered into humanity, became a human being. Just think about how crazy this is, that the God who never sleeps, who's never tired, who never needs anything, came as an infant. That the God who never worries never stresses, he's never afraid, he's never troubled, enter into the messy fray of humanity. The God who is never limited, he is almighty in all of his attributes, would take to himself humanity, limit himself, as Paul says, empty himself to become a human being so that he could be present personally with us. But God has another strategy that's maybe even more crazy than this one. He's, he makes peace through presence, but he also makes peace through weakness. Okay? You probably heard the phrase, peace through strength. Okay? That, I do think, is a great geopolitical outlook. I think I am in favor of peace through strength. But that's not God's strategy at all. God's strategy is peace through weakness. And this has always been the strategy of God. All you have to do is look at the Old Testament and see, What a crazy bunch of people God chose to use as his own people. I mean, God even says this in the Old Testament. I didn't pick you guys, the Jews, I didn't pick you guys because you were remarkable in any way. You weren't the biggest, you weren't the richest, you weren't the best militarily, you weren't the smartest, you didn't have much going for you. And in fact, that's why I picked you. So that all the nations of the world would see what I could do with somebody like Israel. And they would marvel at God and not Israel, and in fact, this is the cardinal sin of Israel is they forgot that, right? They thought that they were something because of what God had done, instead of thinking God is something for what God has done, and he continues this into the Old into the New Testament. I love what Paul says to the Corinthians. He's like, hey, you guys remember, not many of you guys were like rich, powerful, wealthy. You know, this church is not full of all-stars, not the first pick in any draft in this church, but God loves to take things that are weak, and transform them to shame the strong. God loves to take what is foolish in the sight of the world to shame the wise. God loves, because you can almost make an excuse for those two things, but then Paul's like, he loves to take things that don't even exist to bring to nothing the things that are, to show his power in the world. God comes to us as weak people, but but the flip side of that is God comes himself in weakness. I've got to share this quote with you. This is from a sermon from a British pastor named Eric Doyle. And he says, think about a baby. Okay? A baby all it can do is cry. It can't turn itself over, can't move itself for light and food. Everything about it depends on the sustaining presence and love of a mother. He says, now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that this is how we are with God that God's holy presence at the center of all things makes and sustain us and we hang on the edges of that love and presence utterly dependent for everything on him this is so good he says that is true but it's not what i've come to tell you for the astonishing paradox the utterly unexpected good news of the gospel is that it is God who came to us became a little baby was dependent in the womb at the end of an umbilical cord. God, before whom, in one sense, we are weak and dependent, nevertheless chose to come to us in utter weakness and dependence. He who has no need comes to us in complete need. And he comes to us in utter vulnerability. Lest he should ever overwhelm us, he becomes one of us. That baby in the manger could do nothing for himself, the god of the universe crying and dependent on the loving provision of mary and joseph there's no other story like this that god would come in weakness to weak people and that's how he's making peace see he made peace through the blood of his cross most kings make peace by stamping out all of their rivals and enemies making sure that everything is completely and totally under their rule but Jesus made peace by being tortured to death by the ruling power at the time so that he could rise from the dead and conquer death forever so that nothing that happens to you is outside the scope of what God came to offer through his son Jesus. He makes peace through his weakness. But lastly, he makes peace through love. He makes peace through his love. It took God's great love to do All of this, Christmas is an act of love before it is anything else. That God loved you. The most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world, so loved you, that he sent his son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life with him. This is God's plan. It's an individual act of love that echoes across the entire universe. See, God's plan to put things right is to come and meet with you and put you right. And then turn you around and enlist you in the business of putting things right in the world until he comes again. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. That's a wonderful verse in and of itself. That if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Not if you're in church, not if you're in a great mood or a great spot, or you've got things figured out or you're doing well. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone away and the new is come. And he goes on to say, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us. He made peace with us. Brought us to himself and gave us the ministry of, of reconciliation right so this is this is god's process he makes peace with us he makes us okay with him he sets us right he forgives us he transforms us he puts his spirit in us he totally rehabilitates and reconciles us and then he says now you go and do the reconciling in the world you go and make peace in the world you go and mediate he says he puts it this way therefore we are ambassadors for christ god making an appeal through us, and this is the appeal. we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Amen. We implore you. This is like the word for beg. We beg you, be reconciled to God. Let God make peace with you, and then let's make peace in the world. Verse 7 of our passage in Isaiah is often overlooked, but it's maybe the most important verse in this and it just says something simple. It says, the zeal of the Lord will do this. You may have heard the quote, courage is the first of all virtues because it guarantees all the others. And I was looking at this quote this week because I've, I've heard it attributed to people as far from each other as Winston Churchill and Maya Angelou. And I can't figure out who originally said it, uh, so I'm just going to start saying, as I always say, courage is the first of all the virtues, Because without courage, you actually can't be anything else. You can't be wise, you can't be just, you can't be peaceable, you can't be any of the other things. The thing that's undergirding all of this is courage. And and verse 7 is that kind of virtue in this passage. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, if we we just stopped at the end of this passage and said, God is going to transform you, he is going to send you out, and it's on you now to make peace in the world, that would be a totally impossible task. Everybody would walk out of here feeling like an imposter, feeling defeated, because we, in and of ourselves, even by the help of the Holy Spirit, are totally incapable of addressing the world in the way that it needs to be addressed. But what Isaiah says at the end of this passage is, God is more committed to this project than you are. God is the one who is going to guarantee this happens the zeal the love the passion of the lord of hosts is going to make all things new if you read the last page of the bible you know this is true behold he is making all things new and you can be a part of it if you want to but he's going to do it you can get involved you cannot get involved all things will be made new all things will be brought to peace every knee will bow and proclaim that jesus is lord and you can be a part of that if you want to but if you want to be a part of it know this it's not going to be on your own strength. It's not going to be on your own wisdom. It's not going to bring what you bring to the table. It's going to be God and the zeal of God through his spirit in your life turning you around and making you a part of making peace in the world. He is guaranteeing with his own son that this will happen. The hope for us, if you want to live as a Christian for more than about five minutes, is that God is the one who has signed and guaranteed this project, not not me. God, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will do this. So let me end with the picture of peace that God is making from a little children's book. So we've been reading with Davey the book Corduroy. Maybe you guys remember this book, classic book, a little bear with green overalls. And um, it's amazing because it's not just a good story. it, It has an amazing gospel message in it, right? This is what happens when you're a kid and your dad's a pastor. You can't just read the book. can't just be about a bear in a department store. It's about the gospel. But what happens in this book is you have this little bear and he's sitting on the shelf in a a department store and uh, he wants a family. He wants a home. He wants somebody to buy him. And this little girl named Lisa comes by and she wants to buy corduroy. She's like, you're exactly what I've been looking for. And the mom And the portrayal of parents in these kids' books always kind of cracks me up. The mom comes through, gives a sigh. She's like, I've already spent too much. You know, they've been out Christmas shopping. And so she says, you can't can't buy them. And to add insult to injury, she says, and one of the buttons is missing on his overalls. You don't want a defective bear like that. So Corduroy then goes on this epic journey in the department store at night to try to find his button. He doesn't, runs into the night watchman. The next morning, the little girl comes back. And she walks right up to him, and she says, I went home and got all the money in my own piggy bank and brought it back to buy you because you're just what I wanted. And she brings him home, and she has her bed, and then she has a little bear bed next to it. And Cordero is thinking to himself, this is a home, it's a family, it's what I've always wanted. But the great part of the book is at the very end, like on the last page of the book, he's got this home, he's been loved, he's been bought. And then she says, I love you just the way you are but I think you'd be more comfortable if I sewed your button back on your overalls. That's how the story ends. And and that's such a profound picture. Like you couldn't write that book without Christianity because the moral of that story is you can be loved exactly the way you are. You can't earn it. You don't measure up. We're all admitting that Corduroy was not the perfect bear. He wasn't what everybody had dreamed of. He's a defective bear, and she loved him anyway. But here's the great news of what God is doing through his son at Christmas. He loves you as you are, and he loves you too much to let you stay where you are. Right? There's not a trial period for corduroy. You're home. She loves you. She bought you. She purchased you with her own money. And now she's going to begin to make you right. She's going to begin to turn you into what God always created you to be. That's the message of Christmas. God loves you. You could never earn his favor. You could never live up to his standard. He bought you with his son's blood before you did anything for him. And once he brought you home, and once he set you up and stood you up as a new new creation in him, he's going to start to sew all the buttons back on and make you into what God created you to be. Because he loves you. So let me pray. Father, we thank you that you loved us when we were unlovable, that you sent your son into a world that wasn't ready for you, it hadn't cleaned up yet, hadn't gotten things right yet, but you sent your son into the midst of all that so that you could come into our lives in the midst of our sin and our rebellion and make us right. Father, what a gift it is to be able to embark with you in the great project of setting the world to right, to making things Okay, to making them right again. So, Father, fill us with your zeal and with your spirit this Christmas that we would be rejuvenated and energized by your love to go about the business of reconciliation in our world, making peace just like you've made peace with us. Father, we love you for that. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning, as we continue in worship, we're going to celebrate communion. And communion is a feast for those who have called upon Christ and have come to live with him in his home. In fact, the picture of the Bible is that communion is the great feast of the wedding supper between Jesus and his bride, which is the church. And I think it's especially significant this morning that as we enter into the feast of Christmas, which has been practiced in the church since the very beginning, that we fast leading up to the feast of Christmas, that you come in the first feast of Christmas would be this table. Come and feast on the bread and the cup of the Savior. And so as you come this morning, you'll tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. And uh, we'll say, this is the body of Christ which was broken for you. This was his blood which was shed for you. And as we come, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. We're proclaiming that things may not be what they're supposed to be now, but one day he will return and the project will be complete and everything will be made new again. Come, stand, come to the table of Jesus Christ.